What up, what up, what up? You already know what it is. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Dynasty Dawn. I'm your host, as always, Matt Ward, at PsychWardFF on all social media. Today, I was looking through some startup ADPs and some market consensus valuations, and I noticed some pretty interesting discrepancies and some overvalued players, I think, that we should talk about. Before we get too far into it and get into the breakdowns, you know what we got to do. We got to drop that intro. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Brodo Fantasy Football Podcast presented by BrotoFantasy.com and the Fantasy Football by Brodo app, the only tool you need to dominate fantasy football. Like, share, subscribe, download that app for free. Click the bell for notifications on YouTube. Thank you for tuning in. As always, I'm your host at PsychWordFF on all social media. We're here, folks. I was looking through some startup ADPs. I was looking at some market consensus, sleepers ADP, DLF ADP, some keep trade cut values. And I was noticing as the off season shakes out and we get through these incessant white noise hot takes that there's been some pretty interesting evaluations and, and a lot of players that I think are being overvalued. And, and this isn't necessarily an indictment against the player or their upside, more so the process that is taking place when you're investing so much into these players when similarly um, valued guys or, or guys that are valued even later rather have similar upside and similar range of outcomes, especially when you're looking at some of these rookies, as we've talked about on a lot of the previous episodes, but we've glossed over some of those um, ADPs and some of those startup cost values, but now we're going to get a little deeper into it. And I want to start, I think, just by explaining a little bit of that process and what I mean by these off-season market evaluations. It's it's that very nature of, of instantaneous fantasy news and things like Keep Trade Cut and the sharing of, of information and processes on Twitter and social media. It kind of led to the dynasty market being more volatile than ever. Um, whereas a redraft market, so to speak, would see a lot of those volatilities play out with week-to-week swings and major swings in value, but the dynasty market is supposed to be a little bit more concrete in the sense that you're not necessarily trying to win every single week, but elongate your winning window and make safe bets and, and take safe risks so that your upside can not just last for one season, but multiple seasons to come, hence even the term dynasty, right? Like that's what we're here for is to kind of try and find those values in those historical paths that lead us to creating not just an overnight winner, but a winner that can withstand these volatile market shifts and withstand year after year production and value changes. Like once the proverbial petrol gets poured and and these, these Twitter fingers kind of snap to ignite that system, player values can burn to the ground overnight in Dynasty. And you've seen it with incredible fluctuations on market consensus calculators like Keep Trade Cut. Value changes of this nature cause a ripple effect in the market. And it's for every step up the ladder, someone's got to move down and and vice versa. So we're not looking like as your typical buy sell episode where, you know, this player, you should trade for this player. Now we might suggest some transactions here today, but we're going to hone in on distinct and seismic shifts in the dynasty in the dynasty community provide an explanation as to why these changes are happening and why these market values exist in the first place and tell you how you can kind of exploit those changes to benefit your roster, both from a win now standpoint and an elongated building process. If a player drops or raises in value drastically, that's when you might be able to make a pivot for a specific player in a specific transaction. However, the primary goal 
for me and for you as a, as a listener is to understand how to adjust within the market, how to make changes and adjust within that market, avoid getting kind of swept up um, in all of the overreaction process that happens in the off season, the, the coach speak, the, this wide receiver is playing running back snaps or, or this running back is playing out of the, out of the slot, things of that nature. And, and managing a dynasty roster is about building long lasting success. It's a chaotic and unpredictable landscape at best in fantasy football. So the idea should be to give yourself as many assets sets or bargaining chips as I kind of like to look at them as possible and ones of as much insulated and high value as possible with as little risk as possible so that when you do move all in the deck is going to be stacked in your favor so today as I kind of alluded to at the top of the episode before the intro there we're going to look at some overpriced assets in dynasty as I've been doing some recent startups and in in looking at some startup ADPs, some some keep trade cut guys that are kind of leveling out now that rookie draft season is is past its hype and the NFL rookie draft is far behind us for a lot of that information. If you're still looking for it, just go back into the archives. We got you covered. But now that that season has kind of calmed down, we're getting into that off-season white noise, the the quad season as some people like to call it, where Everybody is at peak upside and everybody is kind of overvalued, but there's some serious names and some guys that are obviously going to be household names for our listeners that that you're not going to have to look very deep down the ADP to find that are being valued really at their ceiling. And that is a part of that negative process that I'm talking about, investing in guys at their ceiling, leaving you with basically no wiggle room for a value increase if that production doesn't necessarily meet like you're asking these guys and and not all of them will be rookies but you'll see a common denominator in this podcast that obviously some of these rookie values and rookie hype trains have are still going on and are, are peaking beyond what we thought could happen even in our rookie drafts um a few weeks ago a few months ago but for the most part it, it's there's some sophomore guys some third fourth year guys that, that are being truly overvalued we're going to cover five of my most overvalued guys again that are kind of being valued at that peak point of the production also must meet their dynasty ADP. Otherwise that value can only decrease kind of guys in that tier and in that perspective. Um, and it's not easy. So we'll start it right away with a, a player that I really love. And, and I guess it, before we get into it, it should be always mentioned that I'm always looking at these values and these ADPs through a super flex lens. Specifically, I'm using sleeper super flex startup ADP and keep trade cut evaluations as the common denominator, so to speak, as the market consensus calculator, so to speak here. But the first player I really want to bring up is Garrett Wilson. Uh, wide receiver of the New York Jets, 22 years old, his sleeper ADP at wide receiver four overall, uh, 2.03 in dynasty startup draft. So that's 14th overall, the 14th player off the board. Keep trade cut ranking of wide receiver four, 112, the 12th overall rated asset in dynasty super flex leagues on keep trade cut with a keep trade cut value of six, nine, eight, six, which essentially puts him in a top five tier of top 12 overall players. Um, Adjacent assets, to put that into perspective, guys like CeeDee Lamb, who is a well-established, the consensus wide receiver three overall, obviously, but only one pick ahead of Garrett Wilson, according to consensus calculators. Justin Fields, who in Superflex leagues should 
certainly be valued um, as a first-round startup pick, in my opinion. A.J. Brown, Jalen Waddle, Anthony Richardson, and Amon Ross St. Brown. That's basically saying that Garrett Wilson is worth two premium first-round rookie draft picks and then potentially some more. So to break that down, like Garrett Wilson stood at the, at the top of my rookie wide receiver rankings um, in his respective class. He lived up to all of those expectations, so to speak, in, in his rookie season, despite poor quarterback play. He ranged from horrendous to mediocre quarterback play in the forms of Zach Wilson, Mike White, and of course the husk of the elite Joe Flacco. And <laughs> and now like, yeah, like Wilson was always going to see an increase in value because he hit certain rookie production thresholds that that lend to a very positive lens of future production. But also, obviously, future Hall of Famer Aaron Rodgers coming into town has caused an understandable market swing, an understandable market swing that's going to be in the favor of our sophomore wide receiver Garrett Wilson or his second year wide receiver, how whatever idiom you want to use. But nevertheless, Wilson's current top tier valuation poses, I think, some interesting and important debates. So he leads the Jets in targets as a rookie. He commands 147 targets through the air, 24.9% target share, but that's only wide receiver 21, 26.9% target rate. That's wide receiver 16. Obviously very impressive as a rookie. Levies those targets into 83 receptions, 1,103 yards, 13.0 uh, points per game. That's wide receiver 30 in points per game last season. And his overall counting stats place him in a pretty elite tier, like over a thousand yards as a rookie. There's only eight wide receivers in the last 15 season have done so. Every single one of those wide receivers has put up a wide receiver one season. We've quoted that on the podcast before. But his peripheral analytics and his points per game average point to a much softer range of outcomes than the wide receiver three or four overall in a top 12 asset. For, for Okay. For further perspective there, like Chris Olave recorded a higher points per game average, 13.2, virtually identical efficiency ratings across the board, like while also boasting a higher target share, 26.7%. That was wide receiver 15, a higher target rate, 29.3%. Wide receiver 10 did Olave on a much higher A dot than Garrett Wilson as, as well. Olave had a 14.0 yard A dot, Wilson 10.7. But Yes, Wilson's a little more efficient after the catch, but obviously Olave a little bit better of a downfield worker. And, and they're they're valued well below each other. Like Chris Olave is almost a full round at that three or a two twelve three one turn, whereas Garrett Wilson is being valued at the two one turn. And historically, both of them should see increases in production as they topped all of the perceivable thresholds and everything we want to see for rookies in their inaugural season to create sticky stats and sticky metrics that give us a positive range of outcomes. Both Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave should increase their production as year one turns into year two. But that uptick favors the latter prospect in Chris Olave because he outpaced Garrett Wilson in all categories. Now, like if you can legitimately and the market says that you can trade Garrett Wilson for a first round pick and Chris Olave, you're getting what analytics say is the player that will actually produce more points per game in their second season, plus a first round pick. But because Aaron Rodgers is attached to Garrett Wilson over Chris Olave to Derek Carr, there's a drastic change in value, almost a full first round 
rookie draft pick. And there's no denying Wilson's talent. He's, he's a true wide receiver one. He's a true wide receiver one at the NFL level. He's 23 years old. There's numerous justifiable reasons that we're going to rank this second year star as highly as we do. But the glaring issue is obviously how highly that said ranking has settled down. Like, look back at historic ADPs. Following Justin Jefferson's historic rookie season, and I mean like Justin Jefferson is quite literally in his first three years on pace as what could potentially be the greatest wide receiver that's ever played football. After his rookie season, his star, the star wide out from Minnesota, his ADP leveled out at wide receiver five overall, and then wide receiver four, wide receiver three. It took into his second season before the market consensus actually was like wide receiver one overall over anyone else and is now contending for that spot with Jamar Chase, justifiably so. But he's Justin Jefferson is the reigning wide receiver one in all dynasty formats. Garrett Wilson is not Justin Jefferson, as great as he is. And to see an ADP jump and leveling out um, in the offseason higher than even Justin Jefferson did after his rookie season is historically ludicrous like Garrett Wilson just shouldn't be valued as high as he is should he be valued as the number three wide receiver overall in dynasty or number four as an overall asset potentially you can make that argument for me but as a top 12 asset overall over positional quarterbacks that will continue to score more points per game than Garrett Wilson for quite literally six to seven years no no, not in Superflex leagues. I don't think we should be valuing Garrett Wilson as a top 12 asset, especially when there are pivots backwards where you can add incredible amounts of value while getting incredibly similar upside, a similar range of outcomes, similar points per game, and similar longevity in the exact same position. And it's not just Chris Olave. There's obviously several wide receivers. You're talking about him now being closely valued to guys like A.J. Brown and over guys like A.J. Brown and C.D. Lamb while we're at it. And both of those players have had multiple top 12 seasons and are going into an air an era of their career where they're absolutely in their prime on outstanding offenses with better support. Like it's, it's just a little bit too high. It's from an overall perspective, from a positional perspective, I can understand increasing that ranking to a, he's a top five dynasty wide receiver from an overall perspective, but how hot the zero running back or the stack wide receiver, kind of that progressive struggle where you really build through quarterback and wide receiver first, that that strategy is so successful that if every manager is doing that and, and reaching for these wide receiver values, then you can get a little bit over exasperated and overexcited because he's going to put up very similar numbers to Chris Olave, probably for the rest of their careers. And, and as they were very similar collegiate prospects with the only difference between the two of them being Chris Olave had an extra year um, of, of college service and was a four year senior, which was a little bit of a knock, but they, they quite literally went back to back in the NFL draft, put up essentially virtually identical stats throughout college with, a, again, a little bit of the yards after the catch to Garrett Wilson's favor and a little bit of the downfield targets to Olave's favor. And those are the only things that separate them analytically. They are 
going to produce 17, 16 points um, per game at their ceiling at a consistent rate for the rest of their career, higher at, at their peak. And at their floor, they're also very similar players. They're talking about two very safe assets that are currently being valued almost a first round pick and a full round apart. I'm not saying that you necessarily need to go trade Garrett Wilson straight up for Chris Olave if you truly believe that Aaron Rodgers is going to ascend him to a 22 point per game continuous output for the rest of his career. But you have to keep in mind that Aaron Rodgers is also 40 years old. The quarterback situation in, in New York is not going to be clear clear after that retirement. And yes, Garrett Wilson can continue to produce regardless of his quarterback play as he proved as a rookie. But you're also overlooking the fact that Chris Olave produced more than Garrett Wilson in fewer games or similarly to Garrett Wilson in fewer games, if you're counting in just counting stats, but better than him in all peripheral analytics in fewer games with more points per game with similarly poor quarterback play. You're talking about Andy Dalton and Jameis Winston with Tamis, Taysom Hill hopping in there every once in a while. Like it's not like the new Orleans saints were rolling out hall of fame quarterbacks in Chris Olave's rookie season. And yes, Michael Thomas has returned. Rashid Shahid is getting a little bit of hype as, as a potential sophomore breakout alongside him but Chris Olave is the man there they did trade their future to draft him 11th overall and as a Saints fan I can confidently say that he is going to lead them in targets that is how this offense is going to operate through the air it will be through Chris Olave and as the beats are saying Derek Carr has a rapport with him and things are are looking like he's going to be the wide receiver one as everything is pointed in that direction this isn't a direct comparison of the two Ohio State wide receiver prospects. Moreover, an analysis of the process to be able to pivot off of somebody for Garrett like Garrett Wilson, who is valued at their absolute peak in both production. Because let's face it, he is not going to surpass Justin Jefferson or Jamar Chase at any point in his career, likely, when it comes to value. These guys have both established in Chase and Jefferson that they are two of the best wide receivers that have ever played the game of football. They are both in their youth prime, have yet to even hit second contracts, have solidified quarterback play. Justin Jefferson, obviously, a little bit more of a cloud with Kirk Cousins in, in his future career, but I don't think that Minnesota will ever allow um, his prime to to fizzle out either. And, and Jamar Chase attached to Joe Burrow with, with assumingly both of them getting major extensions when that time comes. Like Those guys will be solidified as the wide receiver one and two, swapping places back and forth, whoever has the hot hand in production. Garrett Wilson won't be at that level. He may produce at a Devontae Adams level at some points during his career, but with the youth and the continued production that Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase will have, it's simply not giving Garrett Wilson any room as the 12th overall player off the board to increase his value. And that's where I have a bit of an issue. And that's where that overvalued term kind of comes into play. It's it's not an indictment against his ability to produce as an NFL superstar and not just a star, but a true superstar. It's his inability to psychologically surpass on the market, the trade market, the value market, and in in my opinion, the production market, because let's face it, Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson are built different and Garrett Wilson is built, but not that differently. He's not going to surpass these guys. And you're valuing him at a point that he hasn't even proven as if he is going to easily surpass these guys, as if he's going to increase that value from a top 15 overall superstar 
um, Superflex startup asset rather uh, from a top 50 into something even higher than that. And it's just really difficult to see that path based on everything that we know about the dynasty market. Again, not an indictment of the player or the, his ability to produce, but he needs to produce and will still unlikely surpass his current evaluation at any point in his career. If there is an any time where that production doesn't meet that lofty top six wide receiver in point per game outcome, then Garrett Wilson's value will decrease, especially with guys like Marvin Harrison and Emeka Egbuka and, and further down the line with Luther Burton and some superstar wide receivers coming in that are already incredibly valued incredibly high when you look at the combination of Devi and dynasty assets there's some wide receivers that are valued incredibly high that can only go up where you're valuing wilson in a place where he cannot go any higher and that kind of brings me to an, my next guy because I feel very similarly, at least for the start of his career, and we have talked about him before, and we're going to switch the gears a little bit to some rookie valuations, and it's Anthony Richardson, because I love Anthony Richardson. I think all the upside in the world is there, and, and he he's quite literally the most athletic quarterback that has ever tested at the NFL Combine. 21 years old, sleeper ADP is, is QB9. Um, that's 2-2, 13th overall, one spot behind Garrett Wilson um, in that keep trade cut rank a little bit lower, actually 16th overall, but but right around that you know top 15 asset evaluation. Adjacent assets, Justin Fields, Amon Ross St. Brown, Brees Hall, Chris Olave, Deshaun Watson, Jonathan Taylor. So rookie liquidation is one premium first round rookie draft pick. That's obviously in consideration with, you know, the one, two, one, three overall this year, but one other first round rookie draft pick as well is where that has leveled out. So you're talking two kind of premium first round rookie draft picks to, to get um, Anthony Richardson on your roster in, in at least pick liquidity. And we've extensively covered his meteoric value rise throughout the NFL draft process, finalizing the rookies Colts quarterback in our rankings or my rankings, I should say in a shared tier with, with Bryce young with, I guess, obviously the dynasty market evaluation now favoring Richardson because of that insane rushing upside. But there's never been a quarterback in the history of the NFL with Anthony Richardson's raw athleticism. Like, okay, we've said it before. But I'll say it again. He has a perfect relative athletic score of 10.00. It removes all hyperbole from my previous statement. He is the most athletic quarterback that the NFL has ever seen. Unfortunately, attached to his unlimited upside as a rusher is equaled by an extremely unpolished ability as a passer. When Anthony Richardson was at Florida, three years, three years the kid spent at Florida as, as the, the de facto starting quarterback. He posted accuracy ratings of 50%, 59.4%, and 53.8% with CPOE ratings below 50% in all three seasons and an average air yards per attempt of 7.6. That is quite literally, and again, removing all hyperbole, the most inaccurate and inefficient passer to ever be selected in the top five of an NFL draft. The most inaccurate and inefficient passer to ever be selected in the top five of the NFL draft. I had to repeat that. 
below 50% CPOE ratings, below 60% overall completion ratings. His rushing upside alone is not nearly enough to propel him into the top five dynasty ranking in both on-field production and market value that is being assumed of his ceiling. Now, can he get there? Yes. I like Anthony Richardson. I am of the mind that he can potentially get there, potentially, but it's going to take longer than one season. It's going to take longer than managers are willing to wait with his current cost of investment. That's where this rookie fever kind of gets out of hand. You're expecting right away. Right away doesn't happen in Dynasty as much as managers would like, and not all managers are comfortable with that. So when you're looking at like, oh, I'm at that 112, 110 turn, I'll take a top end I'll take Bijan Robinson or maybe Jamar Chase fell a little bit. I'll take that top end positional player and Anthony Richardson is my QB one. You better be looking to build for 2024. And I'm not saying because you have to, because that's going to happen. It's a certainty that Anthony Richardson will not produce as a rookie. I'm saying you have to be able to be that flexible in your roster build because there is a very, very high chance that Anthony Richardson is nothing more than Justin Fields rookie season for his entire career. Because you have to take Justin Fields as the most recent and kind of an excellent example. It took him until his second season, obviously a horrendous rookie season where he was essentially unusable in fantasy, but it took him to a second season. He set the single season rushing record for a quarterback. 1,143 yards did Justin Fields run for. Eight touchdowns. He averaged 14.73 points per game in rushing production alone. That was by far the most of anybody in the NFL. For, for quarterbacks fields finished as the QB five in points per game. That was his absolute ceiling. He averaged 20.5 per that was 5.1 points per game behind Jalen hurts. That that is astounding. The game change. You talk about Konami code quarterbacks, but then attach the passing production of Jalen hurt. Like the game changing gap that passing production is needed to actually bridge flash in the pan QB one production to perennial top rated dynasty quarterback. That's what's truly game changing. It's not the ability to rush alone. It is the ability to do both. And there's very little to suggest that Anthony Richardson possesses those traits. It places him in an extreme outlier tier rather than the tier of risk-free asset of preposterous value that people are attaching to him. He, that you're really talking about Josh Allen and that's that's people are like well Josh Allen's phenomenal that's a bad bet like Josh Allen for all intents and purposes as as great as an outlier as he has been he was a horrendous passing prospect with incredible raw upside that doesn't even near match Anthony Richardson's Let, let's go there Anthony Richardson absolutely surpasses Josh Allen but it was not until throwing motions were changed and Brian Dayball changed the offense and, and truly took him under his wing and that Josh Allen was even relevant it was a horrendous rookie season and People absolutely overreacted and oversold and declined Josh Allen's value. But that could happen to Anthony Richardson as well. Like passing production needs to be attached to this to this insane rushing upside for him to really serve that top 15, my QB1 overall, eventually potentially surpassing even guys like Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, Jalen Hurts, Joe Burrow, Trevor Lawrence a healthy Kyler Murray, Dak Prescott, if he can stop throwing so many picks in a new, with a new offensive coordinator. But like you're 
he needs to surpass guys that are similarly aged with at least six, seven years, which is much longer than you should ever be planning for a, a win now window in Dynasty anyway. Surpass all of these guys with his profile, guys that are already established, guys that are already putting up continuous Josh Allen, two QB1 performances back-to-back, Jalen Hurts, two Q, QB1 overall, QB5, Josh Allen, or um, Patrick Mahomes, nothing but a top five quarterback, Kyler Murray, nothing but a top six quarterback in points per game. Like you're talking guys that have done nothing but produce at every single level and risking it all on Anthony Richardson over these guys, or at least in similar tiers to him, Joe Burrow and, and Justin Herbert and Trevor Lawrence, who possess incredible pure passing upside, which also elongates and adds safety to that position and value insulation to that position over a guy that has never really one proven it on an NFL field, but let alone proven it in college, never shown that passing gap that's going to cover his Konami code. That that's really going to push the last button on that Konami code and, and allow for a perennial top five producer, a QB one overall valued asset, a top fifteen asset to increase in value. And again, that's the common denominator here. It's not an indictment against these players. It's an indictment against the process at investing in players that have no wiggle room to increase in value whatsoever. That can only go down if their production doesn't meet the psychological assumption that they're going to be more than the investment in the first place. I think a positive pivot strategy, and I've already said his name before, obviously would be trading the rights to Anthony Richardson for Kyler Murray. Because look, like, yeah, Kyler's going to miss like eight, eight weeks. But you're assuming that Anthony Richardson produces above Kyler Murray's peak upon healthy in those first eight weeks. And I don't think that's an absolute. I don't know if it's an absolute ever in his career, but it's going to take longer than eight weeks for Anthony Richardson to be a solidified, continual producer at the NFL level. I think, I think it's going to take longer than eight weeks. I think it might take an entire year. I think it might take multiple. Obviously the Colts believe in giving him a longer leash. Had they have that fifth year option, that high first round draft capital, he's going to have a lot of time to develop in that offense, but it might take a lot of time. And right now you could trade Anthony Richardson for Kyler Murray and that premium first round pick that I'm talking about that we were uh, attaching that you would have to give multiple to be able to draft Anthony Richardson at his current position at, at the one, three to trade it away or the one, two to trade it away. If he's your QB one overall and in that 14th overall startup pick, like that takes two premium first round picks. You're talking about multiple 2024 first one high and one in a random spot or a 2024 and a 2025 first first probably hopefully both landing early from that from that manager and you can get that production immediately upon a healthy quarterback's return without the risk attached uh waiting on murray's injury that that's akin to the waiting on the much needed development window that richardson's going to undoubtedly go through when he's cementing himself as a nfl superstar if he ever does so and you can do so with other quarterbacks as well. Like you can trade back even further guys like Tua who, who yes, the concussion risk is absolutely attached to that, but that's, that's a similar risk attachment for two rounds, less of a price. Um, and a guy that has produced at a top eight level in points per game when healthy, where Richardson can do that can absolutely can, but has not. And it's not like you're investing a, later pick that is going to give you incredible upside when when that production eventually maybe possibly does hit you're valuing him as if that production is already attached 
and it simply isn't. And, and again, that's going to be the common denominator. It's it's attaching yourself to the assumption that this is already the right decision. This is already the best bet. This is already a player that is going to put my team over the top when that is not necessarily the case in rookies specifically, but, but let's retrocede back a little bit to Garrett Wilson is a player of Garrett Wilson stature that has already produced very highly as a, at a rookie level and, and absolutely can continue to grow and continue to progress is just not going to become higher valued than the players that are similarly aged with similar win now window trajectories, putting up more points per game. Like if Jalen hurts has another top six top eight, I think he would have to have below honestly top 10 point per game season for him to even see a slight decrease in value. But a player like Jalen hurts, a player like Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, any of those players put up top eight point per game seasons. They will continue to be valued more than Anthony Richardson. Anthony Richardson will need to put up QB one overall in his rookie season for him to be find an, an avenue where he can increase in value. So moving away from rookies, we're going to go into a running back, a running back that I think may have peaked a little early and may never see that peak again. I'm talking about Richardson's teammate, and that is Indianapolis Colts running back, Jonathan Taylor, 24 years old, sleeper ADP of RB4, 2.08, that's 20th overall. Keep trade cut rank of RB3 right now, 2.09, that's 21st overall. Keep trade cut value of 58.60, which essentially puts him in that top five tiers of assets where you know the, the top one is Mahomes and Allen. The top the two tiers is Jefferson and Chase. Like so it puts him in a very short list of top tier assets. Adjacent assets for perspective, Brees Hall, Chris Olave, Christian McCaffrey, Bryce Young, Devontae Smith, Jameer Gibbs, which essentially is saying in rookie liquidity, uh one premium first round pick and a one second round pick plus maybe a flyer as well, or one premium first round pick and a pick that people know will be like 112 because you're handing it away to the best team. Um, that said, trade Jonathan Taylor for Jameer Gibbs and a pick. Cause I mean, that, that's it. That That's, we can start and end there. We're obviously going to open it up a little bit more, but trade Jonathan Taylor for Jameer Gibbs plus a pick and laugh your way to the bank. We have preached the value volatility of running back position on numerous occasions with all of our guests. We've done it even in redraft, you know, like you can get guys off the waivers that will win you your leagues. You, that's the, why the Brodo seesaw running back method that Mike likes so much. It works so well is you can fill those secondary roster spots. I'm not saying Jonathan Taylor is by any means a secondary player. That is not what we're saying here, but no one is safe to the treacherous waves of market changes when it comes to evaluating dynasty running backs. That's my point. Jonathan Taylor is just one season, one season, like last season was a down season, but that's one season removed from a campaign where he topped all fantasy assets as the RB one overall. And now he ranks below a 199 pound receiving running back specialist, just slightly below and, and ahead in a lot of market consensus, you're going to see Taylor go ahead of Jameer Gibbs on a lot of drafts, but 
barely just below a 199 pound receiving specialist, a player coming off a complete ACL tear in Brees Hall, a 27 year old in Christian McCaffrey. Um, and of course, Bijan Robinson, who has never played an NFL snap like that is the treatment that you get at 24 years old after already performing at the highest possible level you can possibly perform at in terms of fantasy production. The RB1 overall in points per game. Now, on most consensus, again, Jameer Gibbs is ranked well below Jonathan Taylor, but this is what I'm saying. I will take Jameer Gibbs before Taylor in a heartbeat. And for anyone that will give me a plus on top of it, thank you very much. By no means is it a decimation of the player himself. Jonathan Taylor is amongst the most talented running backs I've ever watched in the NFL, absolutely ever seen in college. The way he smashed through Big Ten defenses is just unnecessary. But over the last decade, he's one of the best players that's played the position. He provides incredible value to the Colts roster. I'm not denying that not decimating the player whatsoever. Managers simply need to acknowledge that his current price point, which places him above Jameer Gibbs, above Christian McCaffrey, and players even like Saquon Barkley, who I think will probably have a similar point-per-game output to Jonathan Taylor in 2023, it's it's just a bad investment to me. Especially when you're attempting to secure value increases that are also attached to the top tier production that it costs to invest in these players. But you also want value increases. During Jonathan Taylor's run as the RB1 overall, he posted averages of 21.9 PPR points per game. That would mark the lowest RB1 average since 2008. Like, his peak has been met. 21.9 PPR points per game at his peak, should he ever reach that again, isn't going to get Jonathan Taylor RB1 overall. And yeah, valued at, at the RB3, RB4 in, in sleeper, RB3 in keep trade cut. But Jonathan Taylor has probably met his ceiling. And there's an argument to be made that his absolute peak is still well below the upside of a player like Jameer Gibbs, who was drafted 12th overall and possesses one of the greatest collegiate receiving profiles in NFL history, which in collegiate football history, which is what we know to be the true code breaker for PPR studs. Like Austin Eckler has never had a thousand yard rushing season, not once in his career, never has finished top five multiple times and has finished with RB1 overall point-per-game production much higher than Jonathan Taylor's, by the way. Alas, nearly a full round separate Jonathan Taylor's ADP on sleeper from the Lions rookie. And to add more weight to that Gibbs debate, even though he only has 199 pounds, so there's no pun intended, but to add more weight to the Gibbs over Taylor debate, or at least the Gibbs plus give me a pick over Taylor debate, is only three running backs in NFL history have been selected in the top 20 that have multiple collegiate seasons with a receiving market share above 10%. That's Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, and Reggie Bush. That's it. That's ever. And this is pulling this from Dynasty IM on Twitter. Shout out Ian Miller. Jameer Gibbs has more than double the collegiate career receiving market share of all three of the players listed with 21.7%. Like, All three 
of those players above mentioned had at least 20.0% target share and a 40% rushing share in their rookie seasons. And they were all valued as the RB1 overall at one point in their career. That's an also little interesting narrative to attach. Reggie Bush, Saquon Barkley, Christian McCaffrey, all at one point in consensus, in market consensus, valued as the top asset. Jameer Gibbs shares a short list with three running backs in NFL history that have those thresholds. I don't think Jonathan Taylor's ever going to get there. I think Jameer Gibbs can, is valued below him. I think Christian McCaffrey can put up higher production in a single season before Taylor's value truly drops, uh, a la a Josh Jacobs, and could have a career resurgence, a la Josh Jacobs. But a guy who we held on to, we held on to, showed some solid production, but the value just kept dropping. And, and Saquon Barkley, too, who I think can put up, again, similar points per game. Being valued well above those guys with, with so much wiggle room and and yeah there's obviously the age cliff with McCaffrey and a little more potential value insulation with Taylor there but you are going to get more production um and, and going that running back heavy build going running back early that that's a win now build because as we said the volatility of that position is just so great Furthermore, I think with the Colts drafting Anthony Richardson and their offensive line decaying from the strength of years past, there's a narrative to be had that Taylor will never reach that peak again in his career. Like he'll never put up even 21.9, let alone RB1 overall. And if Jameer Gibbs sniffs top five point per game production and Bijan Robinson puts up top five point per game production and guys like Raheem Sanders and Quinshawn Judkins and and Nick Singleton continue to enter the league, then there's really nowhere to go for Taylor but down. I'll switch back gears. I had to get the two teammates out of the way, though. The, the the Colts might be one of the teams that have the most overvalued players. I could probably bring up Michael Pittman, too, but I actually like Michael Pittman, and I think things are kind of starting to round out back down um, for him, rather, where I'm almost much more willing to invest. But that's neither here nor there. We're going to get into the guy that I think might be the next most overvalued asset in, in Dynasty currently. When, when you're talking about the, the white-hot annoyance of summer off-season swings for me man like as much as i like this guy and liked this player in college certainly it's it's cj stroud it's cj stroud being valued as a top 12 um qb in startups at the 3-2 the 26th overall qb 12 on keep trade cut 3-6 30th overall a little bit of a discrepancy there from their overall position, but 26 to 30, not that big of a jump when you're talking about that tier six player. Um, Kyle Pitts, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Kyler Murray, Dak Prescott, Saquon Barley, again, J- Saquon Barkley, Barley. <laughs> again, Jameer Gibbs pops up on this list uh, as value adjacent players. Um, value adjacent rookie assets or, or rookie picks would be like one premium first round rookie pick plus one premium second round rookie pick. So a high second, high first. That, that's where we're talking about with CJ Stroud. You're not going to be able to just trade a late first straight up for that one five, one four. You're going to have to add a little bit to it. You're going to have to add a little bit to it to get back into the top um, 30 assets as well in Superflex startups, potentially a little bit more depending on how people value Stroud and if he's falling down the boards like consensus says he is. But I still think it might be a little bit too high of a value, even though at points he was valued a little bit higher as well, the QB 11, but not much of a swing there. Landing with the Texans second overall pick, 2023 NFL draft, it was largely viewed as a positive. And of course it was. Uh, 
he was largely viewed as the best pure passer in the 2023 NFL draft class, exhibited a sensational touch and ball placement on his throws. Although Stroud lacks like super elite arm strength and uh, that true gunslinger, gunsling it, um, pocket passing ways of his predecessors his prototypical frame his resume of collegiate success his, his ball placement again his touch kind of cemented him as the clear number two behind bryce young without as much risk attached as anthony richardson so to speak so the t- it seemed really great as soon as the texans selected him at number two overall okay like that solidifies let's get him an offense and then the blockbuster happened and the texans traded their entire future and then selected Will Anderson at third overall via blockbuster trade with the Cardinals. Will Anderson being the generational outside linebacker from Alabama, which kind of, in my opinion, muddy Stroud's path to elite production with what can largely be considered to be the weakest supporting cast of his entire football career. Now you're asking like, how does a defensive selection hurt Stroud? Well, like, let me break it down pretty simply. He's always been surrounded by elite receiving talent while under the helmet, Ohio state. I've said it before. There are no less than five to six first round wide receiver prospects that CJ Stroud has thrown to throughout every step of the way. First round NFL draft prospects and probably most of them deservedly of, yeah, Smith and Jigba fell a little bit to 20. So we'll say top 20 draft capital that CJ Stroud has thrown to throughout his entire collegiate career at Ohio State. He now enters a run-focused offense with D'Amico Ryans, the head coach, obviously being a defensive-minded coach as well, with minimal depth at wideout and a dearth of NFL draft capital to address the issue in future years. Like the Texans traded their first-round pick to the Cardinals in 2024 that could have led to an Emeka Egbuka, that could have led to a Marvin Harrison to the Cardinals and don't necessarily have a competitive roster. They don't have their first-round pick, They don't have an overly competitive roster in 2023. It's not going to be a hotbed organization for free agents without incredible surrounding talent. Like the team and the organization have made a conscious decision with D'Amico Ryans as a head coach hire to address and become dominant at the defensive side of the football, giving Stroud a much longer leash for development and developmental failure for that matter as a top to pick without a competent offense around him. Like he's obviously going to have a long leash to develop his skill set, but that's not necessarily an encouraging sign for his current cost. When you're talking about fantasy evaluations to meet expectations, like CJ Stroud's going to have to stand out like almost no other rookie before. He's going to have to hit his peak range of outcomes as a pure passer. He has limited rushing upside in the first place, so he's going to have to meet his peak range of outcomes as a pure passer with one of the weaker supporting casts and receiving casts in the NFL. His overall evaluation as QB12 feels much more palatable when you say it out loud. Like QB12, that's not, but when you're analyzing the assets that are ranked below him and around him at the position, it's... I, I don't know that I can make that jump. Like he shares a tier with elite producers like Kyler Murray and Dak Prescott. Conversely, quarterbacks like Tua, Daniel Jones. I mean, obviously, Geno Smith, Aaron Rodgers, potentially Russell Wilson. You can go way deep into drafts that have 
achieved top 12 seasons in points per game and, and could conceivably do so again, even though it might be for a shortened window with some of those names, but much better supporting cast also currently than the Texans are offering Stroud with clear directions for their offense as well and solidified like roles and, and understandable projections where everything involving Stroud is a projection and everything is an assumption. There's no guarantee that he ever produces at his perceived ceiling, yet he's being evaluated and valued like he can increase above guys like a healthy Kyler, guys like Dak Prescott. I don't think that's going to happen this year, and I don't think it's going to happen next with the Texans not having their first-round pick to address the wide receiver position. Now, he has that insulated value. We, we've we done the studies. We've talked about them on the pod. There's several articles, brotofantasy.com. Go check them out, please, and thank you. Much love. But the Texans' new franchise quarterback, he's got insulated value. He's a top-five NFL draft selection We've seen that regardless from year one to year two, if you're selected in the top five as a rookie quarterback, the dynasty market will also give you that same leash that the NFL has given you where you don't necessarily need to produce as a high asset before they kind of kick you to the curb. And and, and in dynasty, that would be akin to decreasing your value to a point of a face planter. Um, we don't see that really happen from year one to year two when guys are selected this high in the NFL draft. So Stroud has that value insulation. He's solidified as a top five rookie pick in, in Superflex leagues, but road to relevant production is going to be a tough one in the next two to three years. Like it's unlikely that the Texans are going to be a premier destination for wideouts in 2024 and free agency. As I said, their lack of draft capital to solidify the position in upcoming drafts is certainly concerning. There's no clear or immediate path to Stroud increasing his value beyond QB 12, unless he ascends into a tier of rookie production that has only been met by extreme outliers in the past. And I like CJ Stroud. I do, but, but almost akin to Trevor Lawrence, uh, Trevor Lawrence now, even at his peak value, that, that is QB7, QB8 overall. Um, Trevor Lawrence came into the league around QB12 overall uh, as a generational QB prospect and increased four spots and still ha- has shown some question marks. Like that is as safe as a bet as you can get. CJ Stroud isn't that bet, but he yet is being evaluated in the exact same spot as a prospect historically as Trevor Lawrence has been in previous startup ADPs. Th- that to me is just, it's a good process to invest in rookie quarterbacks cheaply, but when they cease to become cheap, And you can literally spend the exact same amount of draft capital and current startups on a safer prospect like Bryce Young or Kyler Murray or Dak Prescott, who are nowhere near the end of their careers. I think you have to do it. I think you have to. And I think you have to avoid paying this high of a premium as we sit at the end of June on a guy like CJ Stroud. We're going to wrap it up with one more rookie. One more rookie. And it's it's not even the rookie himself. It's more the process. And this entire episode has really just been about avoiding the process of overpaying for the unknown. We've seen it so many times. Like, it's not even a good thing to be drafted in the first round for tight ends. I'm talking about Dalton Kincaid. Like, it's not even a good thing. (laughs) Like, it's not even a guarantee that you're, like, there's an, as many good tight ends have ever been drafted in the first round, there are more bad ones. 
The Bills traded up for the rights to select Dalton Kincaid, 25th overall, cementing the young tight end as the, sure, yeah, the number one rookie at the position. And the market certainly has overreacted in agreeance. Uh, he profiles best at, at his absolute ceiling. Like, he profiles best as as the, the, a Travis Kelsey, I guess. Like, a big-bodied slot receiver that can get away with a little bit of extra contact <laughs> um, off of blocking and, and, and chip routes and release routes. He increases his range of outcomes with a, a first-round pick and increases him to a subsequent value as a first-round rookie pick around that 1-7, 1-8, maybe as late as 1-10. But, but in that range, after you see guys like Quentin Johnson and Jordan Addison go off the board. You might see Dalton Kincaid fly right afterwards. And it's worth noting that there have only been three rookie tight ends in NFL history to secure more than 888 yards in their inaugural season. 880 yards, sorry, in their inaugural season. Like it, it's it's a very, very unlikely outcome that Dalton Kincaid actually meets his incredible ADP as, as the tight end six overall um, in dynasty. Now I, I'm going to have to break down the tiers because we say tight end six, but there is a massive value separation between the tiers of tight end. It's Travis Kelsey, Mark Andrews, Kyle Pitts. Those are the only tight ends valued as top 36 assets. And then TJ Hawkinson kind of stands alone as like a, a sore thumb as the last top 50 asset is the position. He's got an ADP of 4.09, two full rounds separate. TJ Hawkinson from George Kittle at 6'5 and Dallas Goddard at 6'10. And then Kincaid rounds out kind of another value gap at 7'6. And then perennially slept on and, in my opinion, established producer, third year tight end, Pat Fryermouth drops to 8'1. And that is, you're talking 7'6 to 8'1 for the next tight end, 4'9 to 6'5 before you start to see another tight end run. That is massive value gaps and obviously reflecting the point per game value gaps that you see at those positions. It's, it's almost like, you know, the, the same with quarterbacks where QB 12 is very similar to QB 13 and QB 15, but the top five producers at the position have such a lead on the bottom four of the top 12 that, you know, that that's where you really gain an edge. And you, you, you see that similarly valued in tight end tiers. Now, Kincaid valued at 7.6, like you're expecting immediate production production from the rookie. And it's that's it's still kind of foolish to me. Like it's foolish to have watched every rookie tight end, even guys like Kyle Pitts, who for all intents are, are an generational receiving threat, see significant value losses after not being able to produce, but yet still valued in the top 36. Again, he's not Kyle Pitts. He certainly doesn't have the collegiate production. He doesn't have the athleticism. And in fact, like Kincaid's not even Michael Meyer, at least from a production standpoint, Michael Meyer from Notre Dame, his production absolutely smashes Kincaid's packed production at Utah. Um, and again, two full rounds separate them. Like it's just expecting immediate production from Dalton Kincaid as a rookie at the tight end seven in a top, you know, 70 asset that that's foolish to me. And nevertheless, his immense potential potential as an elite receiver in a position that is scarcely producing game changing players. It's noteworthy, but it's caused Kincaid to be placed in an anticipatory tier well above several established producers and young tight ends with similar upside. Kincaid meets essentially no historical thresholds other than draft capital 
that suggests he should be valued three rounds, two and a half to three rounds ahead of rookie tight end two Michael Meyer, three rounds to four rounds ahead of Sam Laporta, who happened to boast similar athleticism and Michael Meyer with collegiate profile that shatters all of Kincaid's highest production thresholds. Rookie tight end should be viewed as long-term high upside investments. So when their initial draft cost exceeds the logical ceiling of year one production, that investment no longer becomes worth the risk in my mind. And the harsh reality is that Kincaid's probably going to take several years to meet a ceiling. He's going to follow an often overlooked but historic trend of late breakouts at the tight end position. His current value as a top eight producer is likely only going to recede when he inevitably doesn't produce at that level for the first eight to 10 weeks and shows some flashes, but inconsistencies during his rookie season and likely beyond you're talking about year two as well. Like the only perceivable path to an increase in positional value is a major drop off uh, Travis Kelsey retiring a major drop off from guys like Dallas Goddard, Mark Andrews, Kyle Pitts, Travis Kelsey retiring, but that's got to be coupled with Dalton Kincaid producing above his current startup cost. And also, like, he's got to find a path to increase his positional value in his rookie season and produce with a season-long points-per-game average greater than those players that are ranked above him and below him, for that matter. Like... I think Greg Dulcich is an interesting name and, and potentially even Chigakonkwo for the truthers out there. But but Greg Dulcich is an interesting name I like to throw around for late round tight end pivots in lieu of reaching on similar range of outcomes to Dalton Kincaid because Dulcich is absolutely more athletic than Dalton Kincaid. He's an excellent downfield route runner. Uh, he's an after-the-catch monster. He commanded an impressive, very impressive, 17.2% target share. That's tight end 13 in his rookie season. He had an 8 out of 10.6 yards in his rookie season. That was tight end 3. The only other tight ends to meet thresholds like that are Vernon Davis and Kyle Pitts. That, that's, that's it. Like that's not. There's no stutter to that list. It's Vernon Davis and Kyle Pitts. Kyle Pitts obviously being insulated with incredible value as, you know, the argumentative tight end one overall, if not absolutely a top tight end three um, or top three tight end. And Vernon Davis, one of the greatest fantasy tight ends and, and receiving threats at the position ever. Surprisingly, to me at least, Greg Dulcich can be drafted in the 12th round on average. That's at an ADP of 12-3, while Dalton Kincaid, who has never played a snap and is relatively unknown, is going in the 7th round because he was drafted in the first by the Bills. This really is taking a talent over situation thing. Although the, the talent is there and the situation is phenomenal, Dalton Kincaid can be a mystery box of disappointment where there are several producers, five, six, seven rounds later, that have incredible upside that is very similar, if not greater than Greg Dulcich, or have proven that upside with solid point per game seasons, top 12 finishes, top eight f- finishes, guys like Evan Ingram, David and Joku. They're, they're an incredible amount of pivots after you've missed out on those top three assets. And that's why it's so important to look at those value tier gaps. So having 
Kincaid start to climb those value tiers where everyone else is ranked so far below kind of points towards some discrepancy. Something's going wrong on the market. And I think it's an over-evaluation of rookie tight ends as we see every season and seem to just not learn our lesson. Again, I need to reiterate, as I have with everybody, it's not an indictment against Kincaid as a prospect. He has all the tools, all the traits that could potentially, maybe, turn him into a bona fide dynasty star. But moreover, it's his inflated cost that comes with a heated warning to managers engaging in the negative process of paying peak value for the unknown, especially when there is infinite historic data that proves it to be one of diminishing return. And that's it. That's the point. That's the driving factor. It's all love. You know what it is. We're going to wrap it up. We'll wrap it up there. Much love, much respect. Please subscribe, click the bell, download all that ish. Head over to Brodo, Brodo, head over to patreon.com slash Brodo Fantasy. Head over to Brodo Fantasy. Head over to Twitter. Check us all out. But head over to patreon.com slash Brodo Fantasy where you can get all the extras, the DFS optimizers in season. There's lots of betting content, baseball content. We just wrapped up the NBA playoffs. We were running hot. It's the best community in all of fantasy and all of the world even. That's much love to those people who keep the lights on and keep the app running for free for as little as $3 a month. You can get all those perks that I previously mentioned as well as access to me, access to the brothers roster evaluations trade advice all the goodness that comes with a bright-minded community and there's several people in there that can give you great advice along with me as well that are part of the community that we have cultivated um, beyond just the analyst uh, information that we provide head over to twitter at psychordff give me a follow follow at brotoff jason at brotoff tim at brotoff mike at the genius the Broto genius at brodo ff casanova um at brodo fantasy at ff by brodo for all the app notifications at updates yes that's a lot of apps we do have a whole army of incredible content coming to you and it's coming to you live on the app download it for free everywhere go to brodofantasy.com check out that ish we're going to be providing all the heat for you all off season and well into the season, really turning it up now that some ADPs are shaking out and we're getting some drafts going and the best ball season and the redraft season is starting to come around the corner. We got it coming for you all. Thanks for tuning in. Much love, much respect, peace.